Well, today we're continuing our series on transition, calling it the space between navigating the changes that life has. And today we're talking about what does it mean when you find yourself in a place where you really don't belong? And what does it look like for God to meet you there and gently lead you into the place that he has already intended? Now, I don't know if you can remember a time in your life where you ended up in a space that you were not supposed to be in. But when I realized that I was in a place that I was not supposed to be in, I was filled with shock and great alarm. A few years ago, I had, I had signed up to run a race. It was the Detroit Marathon. And I know most of you, like your first thought when you look at me is not, that guy must be an elite runner, because I'm not. Uh, but one of the things when you sign up for a race that you're supposed to do is you're supposed to tell the race organizers what your anticipated pace is. I think I will likely run this fast. And that way, as an act of kindness and mercy, they put you in a group with other people who run the similar speed as you do. Well, I had registered late, and uh, I got my bib number, and at the very bottom of my bib, there's a little, there's a little letter that says, this is the area that you're supposed to start the race, and they call them corrals, and literally, they'll kind of like line the whole street with these metal gates, and once you're in there, you cannot get out. So you are, once you get into your corral, you're committed. And so some of my friends, they're in, the, they're in the P corral. And I'm like, well, no, my, my letter is different than that. So I'll just kind of keep moving down. And then I got to the, the, the F corral and I kept scooching. I'm like, no, mine says A. And I finally find the A corral. And to my horror, it is the very first group of runners before the starting line. And I knew I was in the wrong place because everybody else who's there, they've got like compression socks. They're wearing their Olympic medals. There's a high concentration of Kenyans in this corral. I'm like, something, somebody has made a mistake. And the very first thing that I start doing, just out of panic, is getting towards the edge of the corral. I go, if I can pin myself to the gate, maybe when the gun goes off, I won't get trampled in the ensuing stampede. I go, because one of two things is going to happen. Either I'm going to get run over and I'm going to die, or I'm going to get caught up with this group of people. I'm going to run a five-minute mile, and then I'm going to die. Like, either way, I'm going home in a box. This is, not, this, is not, this is not good. And sure enough, the gun goes off, and I'm just clinging to the side with everything that I have, and I let all of them pass me by, and then I start running. And because it's a staggered start, every two minutes, uh, they release another group of runners. So I, every, every 120 seconds, I got passed by a 1,000 people. And if you, like, if you ever needed, like, a healthy dose of humility, do that, because you're like, I am coming in last today. I had started that day in a moment of just total disarray, because I had been put in a place that I did not belong, and I needed somebody, I was hoping for somebody, anybody, to get me to a space that I was better suited for. When we look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, we're reading a story of God and his relationship with his people, the nation of Israel. And we find them, they're in a place where they don't belong anymore. They weren't in a place that had been their mistake or somebody else's mistake. God had led them there. But God said, you were here for a season, and now your time here is done. And if you want to read along in a copy of the scriptures, if you want uh, like a paper Bible, raise your hand. Our team is coming down the aisles. They would be more than happy to give you one. We're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 1. This is near the beginning. If you're looking by page number, this is page 175. This is the point in the story where the people of Israel have wandered around in the desert for 40 years. And just as they get ready to cross the Jordan River into the promised land, Moses is kind of having a nostalgic speech. This is a retrospective moment. He says, in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. 
He said, the very beginning of our journey, the Lord our God said to us at Horeb, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all of the neighboring peoples of the Arabah in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev, and along the coast. To the land of the Canaanites and the Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land, the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to their descendants after them. God said, the first moment that I met you was here at this mountain. The ultimate destination for you is Canaan, the promised land. And so I'm going to lead you across this space between to the river that represents the boundary. And so today we're talking about what is that space between a primary initial encounter with God and the new space that God is leading us to and has created us for. I love that line, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 6. You have stayed long enough at this mountain. And I believe the mountain represents a season that God is winding down. It's a moment where God is inviting us to mature and to lean forward. And I believe that there are three phases to navigating the space between the mountain and the river. And the first phase is that we tell the truth. We tell the truth. God tells the people the truth. He said, hey, I had you here for a run. That run is over. It's time to move on. And somebody once told me that the very act of confession like when we confess things to God, is an act of telling the truth. When we confess, if we've kind of lost our way, we say, you know what, God, my life has gone out of alignment with your life. I'm recognizing that there's a gap, there's a discrepancy, and I'm coming back to you. Have you ever noticed that the people who love you the most are the people who will tell you the, car hold, the cold, hard truth, even when you don't want to hear it? Those are people who love you. Why? Because they won't allow you to wander in self-delusion any longer. That's what God is doing to Israel in this moment. So I want to ask you this question. Are you telling God the truth about your life these days? Are you telling God what you feel? What kind of mental space you're in? Have you paused to tell God, hey, these days I'm angry, or I'm frustrated, or I'm fearful, or I'm hurt? Maybe some of us, the, the life is so tumultuous, so topsy-turvy, so chaotic, we're not, e we're not even self-aware. We have no idea what's going on within us. All we know is that, that we're restless, that we're anxious, we feel tense. St. Augustine said this, he goes, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So maybe you're feeling restless, not because you're in some toxic loop of darkness, not because you're engaged in some series of nefarious activities. Maybe you're doing the right things, but you're doing them for the wrong reasons. And as a result, you feel empty, even though you're not exactly sure why. Some of us, we have patterns in our lives that aren't officially wrong. They just aren't helpful. And as a result, we're not experiencing progress in our spiritual journey. We're not getting to the place that we want to be. And I believe that sometimes the tipping point in our spiritual journey the difference between hanging out at the mountain where things are comfortable and known and moving out into the unknown future, the difference between that is telling God the truth. So when Kelly and I were praying about the decision to come to Central back in January, I sat down with a mentor and I said, hey, we're like 98% sure that this is what God has for us, but I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to pull the trigger. And he goes, why? And I was like, well, I'm, re I'm really nervous about 
my family. I like, this is the only kind of area that my kids have known. They've grown up here, and I just, we haven't done like a cross-state move before, and I'm not exactly sure how that's going to work. I'm, I'm afraid for them. And then he asked me this question. He goes, Steve, what does that tell you about your view of God? And I said, well, it tells me that I don't believe that God cares about my kids as much as I do. And he goes, okay, good, now tell God that. And I was like, this is, I don't think I like where this conversation is going. I'd like to go home now. Uh, but, but I couldn't leave at that point. I'd asked for his help. So I sat down and just put my palms up and I said, God, in my heart of hearts, I don't believe that you have my children's best interests in mind. Will you please show me what's truth? And for many of us, navigating the space between has to start with telling ourselves the truth. Saying, this, is, this isn't, I'm not going to lie anymore about where I really am. And I'm going to tell God about where I am. And then I'm going to ask God to lead me where it's next. So the first phase is telling the truth. The next phase is trusting God's heart. Trusting God's heart. And in that conversation, my friend Jamie said, Steve, do you trust that God really loves your children as much as you do? In fact, he loves them more than you do. He goes, when they were knit together in Kelly's womb, God knew that this moment was going to happen. And even in your mind, you had like one zip code that your kids would graduate high school from. God always knew from the very beginning that it was going to end differently. Do you, do you trust him? And once we tell the truth, once we say, this is where I really am, this is what I actually feel, then we can actually get to the point where we say, all right, God, I'm, I'm going to believe you, and I'm going to trust your intentions for my life. That's what happens in this story. God tells them the truth. You're done here, and now I'm going to ask you to move. And at that point, the people of Israel have to make a decision. They have to ask themselves, do we trust God to obey him and follow him? Verse 21 says, the Lord your God has given you this land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your answers, told you to. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Then all of you came back to me and said, let us send men to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. Moses said, God has already given you a gift. All you need to do is open it. Don't be afraid. Why are they afraid? They have zero combat experience. Never fought anybody before. They don't know how this whole thing is supposed to work. Their entire mentality has been that of a victim, of slave, of disempowered person on the margin. To kind of own their own destiny and their future is strange. It's odd for them. For 12 years, I had the opportunity to serve as a volunteer police chaplain. And I will never forget my first day out on the road. Officer Durant welcomed me very graciously into his vehicle. And he goes, Steve, if anything ever happens to me, here's the radio. You need to be constantly aware of where we are in the community so that you can call for help and give them a location. And he goes, if I'm incapacitated and you need to defend yourself, press this button. It will release the lock on the shotgun. You've got eight seconds to take it out. Release the safety, pump it once, and fire at will. I go, I don't remember signing up for any of this. <laughs> Like, no, no, the brochure never indicated I would be shot at at any time. I am definitely unequipped to handle any of the scenarios that you have just described. This is what the people of Israel feel. Like, nobody told me there was going to be fighting or wars or swords or shields. This is stressing me out. And God says, do you trust me? Do you trust that I have a plan for you? Do I trust that, was, that what is on the other side of your fear is good for you? And that I'm giving that to you as a gift. Moses says, the idea seemed good to me. So I selected 12 of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country. 
and came to the valley of Eshkol and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, it's a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. So the mission confirms what God has been telling them all along. It is a good land. A rich territory exists, and here's the fruit to prove it. The risk? Our fighters are pretty green. The reward? The land is definitely good. Verse 26, but you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. They have a penchant for drama and exaggeration. Have you picked up on that? We even saw the Anakites there. As soon as they hit a first snag, do you notice what their default thinking is? Their first answer right out of the gate is, oh, the Lord hates us. Yeah, that's why the Lord parted the sea to free you from slavery in Egypt, because he hates you. No, not at all. But don't we do that too? Like God will ask us to take a step of faith in the very first kind of sense of a rogue wave or a dark sky. We, we, just, we go into a tizzy and we're like, well, God is unkind or God is unfaithful or God is incompetent. Worst case scenario, God is non-existent. The storms of life, the hiccups that we face, the speed bumps that we hit often threaten us to question the very character of God. And our belief about God dictates the way that we live our lives. Our perspective of God influences every choice that we make along the road. Not long ago, I was making a major decision. And I was talking to a friend, I'm like, I'm just having such a hard time discerning the will of God. And his name is Bob. Bob Freiling told me, he goes, Steve, here's the good news. God does not play games with us. God does not play games with us. When he's trying to reveal his will, he's not playing hide and seek. It's not like that shell game that you play on the streets of Manhattan. God's not trying to hide it. The journey is a gift, not a game. The journey is a gift, not a game. The path that God has us on is not some puzzle that we have to crack in a race against time. It is a walk of faith and trust and humility and hopefully joy. So Moses tries to rally the people back to what he knows is true. He says this in verse 29. Then I said, you do not be terrified. He's reiterating what he just said. Don't be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you. This isn't even your battle. It's God's battle. Will you trust him? He did for you before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carried his son. Ever seen like a father who loves his child carry him? Carries him like this. It's like not doing this. He pulls him in tight and close. It's a nurturing, protective gesture. And he carried you all this way until you reach this place. That God has been faithful to you. Why would you doubt him now? In spite of all of this, you did not trust the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and in a cloud by day to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. I read a book last year uh, by an author by the name of Susan David. She's a psychologist. The book that she wrote was called um, Emotional Agility. And she said that when we are at crossroads and we have to make a major decision, we're trying to weigh our options. Do I stay here or do I move forward? And she goes, a lot of times when we're tempted to stay, we're thinking about what she calls sunk costs. I have sunk this much energy. I've invested this much blood, sweat, and tears into this home, into this job, into these relationships. 
If I leave, I risk walking away from a significant investment of my life. And so we're looking in a rearview rear mirror and say, I'm, I'm afraid of losing these assets. So I'm just going to stay here. She goes, but many times we don't pause to consider what she calls opportunity costs, which are what will I lose in the future if I don't step into it boldly now? And this is the fear of missing adventure. It's a fear of missing adventure. That's exactly what's happening to the Israelites right now. They're like, well, our sunk costs say that we should stay put. And God says, yeah, but your opportunity costs say that she should move forward. So last weekend we had a chance to kind of run into Nate Marielke and his family at Tunnel Park and everybody was playing at the beach. And as we were walking along the shoreline, we saw some kids doing that timeless beach activity for children, which is building sandcastles. And when you put a lot of time and energy into a sandcastle, the thing that you hate the most is the tide because you're like, I spent all day doing this. It's going to wash away in a second. And many times when I think about sunk costs versus opportunity costs, a sunk cost is building a sandcastle. An opportunity cost is turning around and learning that there's an entire body of water that is filled with possibility. And many times when we are tempted to stay at the mountain, we have to realize that we, you can fight to save your sandcastle, but you will never learn to surf. You can fight to save your sandcastle, but you never learn to surf. And that's why God said to the people of Israel, you've been at this mountain long enough. Like, I know you're really proud of your achievements here, but I've got, a, I've got a whole new chapter for you. Will you trust me? I think God wants more for us than we tend to settle for. Author C.S. Lewis had this famous quote in The Weight of Glory. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. I believe that God wants us to want what God wants for us. God wants us to want what God wants for us. Deuteronomy 134, when the Lord God heard what you said, he was angry. And solemnly swore, no one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors. Except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, he will see it. And I will give him and his descendants the land to set his feet on. Because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Why, why did Caleb follow the Lord wholeheartedly and his peers did not? Why did, why did Joshua express faith that his peers did not? Because I think their view of God was different. I think their view of God said, God is mighty, God is strong, God is compassionate. Why would God lead us out of the unknown to set us up to fail? Yes, when God freed Israel from slavery, their first stop was an encounter with God at the mountain. But when we're following the Spirit, the first stop is never our final destination. God doesn't just want us to escape, God wants us to arrive. Because he loves you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God loves you enough to break you out of something that you have grown comfortable with because there's something better for you on the other side? The first phase in navigating the space between the mountain and the river is to tell the truth. The second phase is to trust the heart. And then the final phase is just is to take the step, to actually take the step. God said, I want you to break down this camp. That's an act of trust. And then I want you to advance. I want you to take the, your first step. 
My friend Alex always used to say this. He said, have you ever noticed that walking is controlled falling? Like as soon as you pick up one step, like in theory, your balance is off. For many of you, you remember seeing your son or daughter walk for the very first time. And like, you remember that first time where they could like, they'd always be pulling themselves up on everything and then they, they could stand up with, without any assistance. You're like, oh, that's awesome. You took pictures. And then they took one step and then they fell down. And then they took two steps and then they f- fell down. And then they took seven steps and then 19 steps. And then they never stopped walking even when you wanted them to. Like, I remember our daughter, Grace, we would bolt her into a stroller as soon as she learned how to walk, and she would do this. She'd go, walk, 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 walk. She's like, I don't want to sit. I want to move. We're like, you're killing us. Just stay strapped into your magic seat, right? And I believe that God teaches us to walk. Why? Because God is a God of movement. Buckminster Fuller said God is a verb. And many of us, the image that we have of God is God seated on a throne. God's on a majestic seat, and God stays there. That's the image that we have. But when we read the story of the prodigal son, what do we have? We have an image of a father, an authority figure, an influencer who's doing what? Who's running. And if God is a God of movement and we claim to be followers of God, then we need to be prepared to move when God moves. And many of us, we hear these things like, oh, you got to take a leap of faith. I don't deny that there are moments where we have to take big faith jumps. But by and large, I find out that walking with God includes taking one small step at a time. God isn't looking for like triple backflips into obedience. He's looking for a sequence of baby steps. God's next step for the people was crystal clear. Let's break camp in advance. But what was their response? Their response was, let's do our due diligence. Let's send spies. Do you notice that God never told them to send spies? God said, you have all the information that you need. I promised you the land. I've given it to you. I'm going to fight for you. Don't be afraid. Let's go. And they're like, hey, I got an idea. Let's, let's do some paperwork. Like, let's have somebody draft up these plans. Let's, uh, let's do a PowerPoint presentation. Let's ask our attorney and my cousin and my cousin's brother and the guy who did his patio. Let's, let's talk to all those guys. And then, then we can make an informed decision. You know what that is? That's fear feigning as wisdom. It's fear feigning as wisdom. It's just, it's a smokescreen. It's a cover. It allows us to stall. When God said, I already told you to go, do you trust me? If you did, take one step in the direction that you saw me go. The problem was, is that as a result of that mission, they came back and they were so afraid of what was out there that they, they, didn't, they didn't move at all. And I believe that many times we stumble when our focus is on the enemy before us rather than on the ally beside us. We stumble and our focus is on the enemy before us rather than on the ally beside us. And God says, I have promised to go with you. If you would stop panicking about all the contingencies and focus on me, we could walk this road together. Where are you stuck right now? What mountain have you ground down at? What peak is God leading you away from in this season of your life? Mount fear, Mount hurt, Mount anger, Mount arrogance. What mountain have you been long enough and God saying, you know, we're done here. It's time to go. I was reading the Old Testament story of Job kind of in my private time with God and these words leapt off the page at me. This is Job chapter 36, verses 16 and 17. It said, God is leading you away from danger. Job, 
to a place free from distress. He is setting your table with the best food. But you are obsessed with whether the godless will be judged. Don't worry. Judgment and justice will be upheld. Here's what I love. God says this to Job. You are obsessed with this. And it's causing you distress. And that distress is putting you in a place of emotional, psychological, and spiritual danger. So let me ask this question. What are you obsessed with? And that gap between when you lay down in your bed and when you finally fall asleep, what is consuming your mental energies? What dreams, fears, or temptations are you wrestling with? And is it possible that God is leading you out of a space of complacency or maybe even danger? Not because he's trying to spite you, but because he legitimately loves you. If you are obsessed with something that is causing you stress, it's time to let go and move on. You will not experience the rest, the soul rest that God invites you to until you take a step forward. And when we finally get to the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews reflects on this whole episode that we just talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 1. He said, God was ultimately leading you into rest, but you opted for anxiety and tension and turmoil when you disobeyed. He said, God again set a certain day calling it today. Then he did this when a long time later he spoke through David in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them the rest that they were intended for, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, a soul rest for the people God loves. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort. Let's push. Let's fight. Let's strive by the grace of God to enter that rest so that no one will perish it by following their example of disobedience. God says, you get to choose the mountain of distress or the river of rest. What is it going to be? What do you need to break free from? What do you need to walk away from at this specific moment in your life? Some of us need to walk away from an addiction, a destructive habit. And the first step that you need to take is to, is to tell somebody that that's true, to come clean or to check into rehab, or to come to celebrate recovery. Could be that you've been at this just mountain of hurt and resentment for years, and the step that God needs you to take today is you say, I need, I'm gonna choose to forgive. Starting today, with God's help, I'm going to forgive this person for this offense. And I believe that, decision, uh, that forgiveness is a process and not a moment. So you say, Lord, I'm going to forgive this person today and tomorrow and the next day until you get me to a place where I can release them and even, and this is in accordance with the words of Jesus, to bless them. The first step is today I'm going to make that choice. Maybe God is calling you to live a fully surrendered life with your assets and your resources and your first step is to say, all right, God, for the first time in my life, I'm going to, I'm going to write a check or I'm going to sign up for online giving. I'm going to do something that lets you know that you have access to my resources. My life is no longer my own. Maybe you have a conflict with a group of friends that's just been simmering for months because the gossip wheel just keeps spinning around and around and around. Proverbs says, without gossip, a quarrel dies down. So you could say, you know what? The step that I'm going to make is the next time people bring that up in person or online or over a chat stream, I'm not, I'm not going to engage. I'm going to opt out or I'm going to change the subject because we're, we're not doing this dance anymore. It's not productive. It's not healthy. It's not right. We've been at this mountain long enough. It's time to go to the place that God is calling us.
Something happened to the people of Israel in that space between the mountain and the river. The, nu- the number of fighting men actually decreases. In Numbers chapter 2, at the beginning of the Exodus, they count them. They take a census and find out what kind of fighting force they're working with. It says, these are the Israelites, counted according to their families. All the men in their camps, by their divisions, number 603,550. And at the end of the 40 years, when the people are on the, the bank of the river, when they're at the water's edge, they count them again. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, take a census of the whole Israelite community by families, all those 20 years old or more who are able to serve in the army of Israel. And they did. The total number of the men of Israel was 601,730. So if you do some very basic subtraction, you'll find out that there are 1,820 less fighting men at the river than there were at the mountain 40 years prior. They're the same nation, but they're not the same people. And even though their army is smaller, it is stronger. Why? Because the generation that had been marked by fear, mistrust, hardness of heart, and restlessness had perished in the desert. And their children, who had a different picture, a greater vision, an enhanced confidence of God, would ultimately be the people who crossed the river and took that territory. That whole idea of the river is moving to me. Just not too many miles away from the house that we're getting ready to move out of in Detroit, you can see a statue that commemorates one of the last stops of the Underground Railroad. The Underground Railroad was that kind of secret route that slaves who wanted to be free took, trying to, against all odds, fight for their own freedom. And for many of them, their last stop was the Detroit River because they knew that if they could get to Windsor, if they could get to Canada, there would be an entire new life waiting for them. And if you go to the river, river walk today, you can actually see this statue of a family. Some of them are looking forward and a few of them are pointing back. And at Southern Wesleyan University, a Wesleyan college in Carolina, they actually have a museum commemorating some of the events of the Wesleyan tradition in the fight against slavery. And one of the stories they told there is that sometimes people who are organizers of the Underground Railroad would communicate to slaves who were hoping for freedom through different signs or different codes. And one particular legend or story is that they would hang quilts over the banner, the upper balcony of a plantation. And the sign, the final sign, the last sign that they would get that today was the day that that we were going to go. That under the cover of darkness, we were going to run for our lives and our freedom was this. is they would get a picture of a wagon wheel. And the wagon wheel was basically an ancient version of saying, let's roll. Today is the day. Tonight is the night. We're walking away from this mountain and we are running towards the river. And we're going to risk our lives if that's what it takes to get there. And I want to ask you this. Is it possible that the lover of your soul is hanging a wagon wheel over the balcony of heaven saying, don't wait. Don't wait another day. Today is the day to move. Today is the day to claim freedom. Today is the day that you walk away from the mountain that I have already told you that you've you've been at too long. It's time to tell yourself the truth that I'm done here. It's time to trust God's heart for my next step. And it's time for me to actually finally legitimately take that step. Not think about it, not talk about it, not pray about it, not dream about it. Do it. And do it now. One of my mentors, a guy by the name of Erwin McManus, says that he goes, at our church, we measure spiritual maturity by the speed of obedience. 
who measures spiritual maturity by the speed of obedience. How long is the time between when God says to walk and when you take a step? I don't know about you, I've, I've learned that like the longer I wait, the more I can second guess everything that God has told me. But if I can condition myself to say yes when God moves, then I can move. A few years ago, you remember that miracle on the Hudson? Captain Sully put that bird down in the middle of the Hudson River. I talked to a friend who had been in the military and flown helicopters for the Navy. I go, what was going through his mind when he made that snap decision to put that plane down in the water? And you know what he told me as a, a former military guy? He goes, nothing at all. He goes, you know what the military trains you to do? Not think. They train you to react. He goes, that's why we do flight simulators. That's why you're deprived of sleep. That's why people yell at you in basic training because they don't want you to weigh options. They want you to react. Say, this is what needs to get done. And he goes, without any hesitation, he goes, this is what we're gonna do. He told air air traffic control, we're landing the plane in the water. And that's what God wants from us. As soon as he speaks to say, yep, this is what I'm gonna do. And I'm gonna tell other people that I'm gonna do it so that they won't let me back out and that they would give the encouragement and the sustenance and the desire to go where God is going and to go there now. You have been at this mountain long enough. It's time for you to break camp and advance to open the gift that God has given you because it's something good. So I wanna pray for you and I'm gonna invite Ivan out and he's gonna kind of close us out Uh, with a song that has been meaningful to me over the years as I think about this topic. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you that you love us enough to refuse to let us settle for anything less than what you have invited us to and created us for. And some of us were uncomfortable when we hear this message because we know it, we know what it means. That there are some patterns, some habits, some places, some temptations, in some circumstances, maybe even some people that we need to walk away from. But it's for your glory and it's for our good. So God, would you give us the ability not to see you as some detached dictator, but as a loving father? Will you allow us to trust your heart in ways that we haven't up to this point so that we can join you for an adventure on the other side of the valley of our fears? We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. When the Lord gets ready, you gotta move. Because God has never called us to a life of static living. He's never called us to stasis. He's called us to growth, to movement, to progress, uh, to a spiritual adventure. So some point in this week, if God is not already doing to in this moment, he's going to say, you're done here. It's time to move. And by prayer, my brothers and sisters, my friends here at Central Western Church, my prayer for you is that God would give you the grace to say yes and to say it as soon as he speaks. May God give you the grace to move into the fearless adventure that he's inviting you onto. Please make sure you stick around. Uh, we're going to give a chance to say a goodbye to Gail and to Steve and to Dwight out in, the li- uh, out in the lobby. Brad Gray is coming back next week. You're not going to mi- want to miss that. It's going to be incredible. And then uh, if you want prayer down here at the altar, there's certainly time to come and do that. And our team is happy to meet you in those moments. Thank you so much for joining us. God bless. We'll catch you next week. <laughs>